Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hey, hey. It's time for more Leaving Hillsong. Speaking of Leaving Hillsong, Brian Houston resigned from... 15 out of 16 boards this week. So for all intents and purposes, he might be the one leaving next. In this episode, we're going to start looking at trauma and the trauma produced by places like Hillsong and churches like it. I'm beyond honoured to bring you a conversation I had a couple of months ago with Sean Namon. He spent some formative years in a place he calls the institution He went on to work for the UNHCR for over a decade on the front line with people in refugee communities. He's also got a master's in social work with a specialty in trauma. And he's got a lot to share with us about what he's seen and what he's lived through and his perspectives. I'm privileged to call him a friend and yet you'll hear my nerves. Sean's a very humble man and and I know it's taken him a while to get to the place now where he wants to talk about all of these things. So I asked him the standard question, how did you end up in a church like that? I guess I should probably start with my parents. And, you know, they're from the island of Mauritius, which is uh, off the east coast of the African continent and not far from Madagascar. And my parents identify as Creole, which is, um, it broadly depicts an ethnic an ethnic group with uh, 
French cultural ties and uh, predominantly Roman Catholic. My parents migrated to Australia in the 1970s and uh, I was born in the early 80s. I guess you could call my parents, as uh, Franz Fanon might describe, as the uh, upwardly mobile and, and aspirational, perhaps like many migrants. And yet, you know, I've also got to say that what is true and a common experience amongst the migrant class might be something that I experienced growing up as a child confusion around a sense of place and around identity and and a feeling of commonality being one of the few brown kids growing up in the place that I did. And I guess you could say that this manifested itself in um, self-esteem issues. And it was probably only a lot later that came to realize just how much. And, you know, I guess I, I was quite a talented kid growing up and reasonably intelligent, good at sports and music. And yet, it never really seemed to matter or perhaps it was because of those identity issues and matters of self-perception which influences, you know, that, that influenced the time that success or that talent, you know, to prove something to myself. And, you know, Gabo Mate talks about that a bit and, you know, how in his own life that hyper-success and perhaps something, you know, a, a form of addiction, the need for affirmation, you know, maybe self-affirmation, yet the underlying need was to heal a much deeper trauma. You know, I spent time in a, you know, a very large and... You grew up in a suburban area connected to a major city and it was, mm-hmm. what would you say, pretty much a, a common Australian upbringing? Yes, ab- absolutely, absolutely. You and- know, the, the aspirational class, you could say. I don't think that that was the thing that really drew me and because I, I, I grew up going to church um, I'm just going to call it the institution to be honest I don't even think that it's really a church I was raised Catholic it's uh, it's you know deeply important within the the, the Creole community in, in Mauritius and obviously this was something that was um, you know transplanted here I guess I never felt much life in that faith however you know to me in in the, the ritual of the Catholic Church and I never really felt a, a really deep connection to the divine. And, and maybe that, that's something that I was always looking for. I was always looking for the, the, the metaphysical. And, you know, also, I was also looking for a deep sense of meaning and a, and a deep sense of community. But I, I could never really find that within the Catholic Church in the time. But, you know, one thing I have to say that what interested me in the Catholic Church was was probably more so the sense of mission and, you know, a social justice focus. You okay. know, I went to a Catholic high school and I was deeply impacted by some of the brothers who were, who were you know, my, my teachers there. And there was one in particular, um, you know, I can mention his name, you know, Brother Malachi, and he was my English teacher. And in, in another life, you know, he'd been a principal in a school in Soweto during apartheid. And, you know, he had taught all over the world as a vocation. You know, one of the things that I, I recall from those times was, you know, spending hours talking to him, you know, sometimes in the playground or after class, you know, and we'd discuss anything from Gregorian chant to social justice issues and the anti-racism movement. And, you know, I, I recall amongst those brothers, uh, you know, a deep intellect but, but also a, a deep faith and a deep mission in terms of their sense of purpose and around providing education for young people. Also, I've, I've got to say that, you know, other Catholic figures, you know, such as, you know, people like Oscar Romero, 
um, Father Damien of Molokai and, and probably much later, um, Ignatius Martin Burrow, the, um, the Jesuit priest and psychologist who was murdered by um, right-wing para- paramilitaries in El Salvador, you know, they had a deep, deep impact on my life and, 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 and also on, on the way that I view the world. And, you know, Burrow, he had a, a huge impact on my later career as a, um, as a torture and trauma therapist, particularly around his work looking at the impact of systemic state-sponsored terrorism on individuals and communities. So I guess you could say I was a bit of an odd kid. I used to think a lot. What I lacked was a sense of belonging. You were attending Mass Weekly with your family? Yeah, pro- it- probably would have been at least at least once a month, if not, you know, if not weekly. Sometimes, you know, we tend to go more often. Yeah, but, but in school, yeah, d- definitely. Yeah, yeah, I went through all the sacraments and, you know, confirmation and, 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 and all that jazz. Yeah, as I went on, I think there was a, a you know, greater first for a sense of belonging. I remember when, when I was in um, high school and, you know, it's interesting because I was, I was reading this wonderful book recently by um, the, the linguist Daniel Everett, and he was formerly a missionary and, and a linguist researching the Pinaha people in the Brazilian Amazon. And, you know, and, and they are one of the few true hunter-gatherer tribes in existence today. And, you know, he spent 30 years amongst this wonderful community. And, you know, his book not only documents the intricacies of Pinaha life, but it similarly documents his, his moving away from the church through his association with them. And interestingly, and, and also since the colonization of that country, they are one of the only indigenous groups which has never had a convert to Christianity. But I digress a little bit. You know, his book also documents the beautiful way in which the community structures their life. And, and given that they are traditional hunter-gatherers, you know, we can extrapolate data pertaining to how, you know, how our own ancestors lived and perhaps how we've evolved as humans to feel and structure our human interactions. I guess what I'm trying to say is that, you know, he describes a scenario where the the young people in that tribe don't have the same sense of angst, which is synonymous with our own. You know, there are no existential questions. You know, we often find debilitating. And, you know, these are the things that I think about often. You know, what is our meaning and what is purpose? And, and the thing that, that I've been connected to culturally and also within the country that I was living in, a lot of these questions weren't asked, you know. However, juxtaposed against a community like the Pinaha, they have their law, you know, they have their rites of passage and they had that intimate connection to, to a community. And, and, you know, I never felt that growing up, you know, a deep sense of purpose and there was a thirst for meaning. And of course, as I mentioned before, this was coupled with my own feeling of low self-esteem. And so it was around that time that, you know, one of my friends invited me to a youth group that he was involved with, and it was a Christian one. And, and, you know, yet we had connected as friends through music. You know, we often used to play bass together. So I trusted him. And, and, and actually, we're still close friends today. You know, when there were some bad experiences, I guess it becomes a tendency to only focus on that bad. But, but later, um, you know, I admit, you know, it, it wasn't all that bad. And, and, um, and this first time, it was, it was one of the first times I generally felt connected to something. And, you know, I, I recall going to this meeting and there probably would have been maybe, you know, 20 young people. It was, it was in, in many ways, it was, it was quite a beautiful experience. 
and and I experienced this a lot later, you know, when I was working in the UN, living in a context where you feel that you rely on your neighbor or your colleague for your survival, right? Emotional survival in context of, you know, insecurity, but that feeling that 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 connected feeling is something that is so inherently human, right? And I think that a lot of people are looking for that. You know, they're looking for that sense of tribe. They're looking for that sense of purpose, but not just as an individual, but also a sense of purpose with others. And it was probably around the same time that I was really seeking for this. And why would a young man who's achieving so much and playing sports and doing all the things and ticking all the boxes that people think leads to self-esteem, why do you think you suffered from that low self-esteem? Do you, I mean, is that to do with not having the connectedness that others had? I think, it, yeah, I think there's definitely a part of that or the perception because maybe the others also didn't feel the same, right? Mm. But, you know, I was talking a little bit about you know, about Gabo Mate, right, and about the the idea of that hyper-success being a form of addiction. And his circumstance was that he was a Holocaust survivor. The thing that motivated his success was a, a, a deeper trauma, and it was the, the first for that sense of affirmation. It was, it, was a, it was a first for the sense of that you are doing well, right? That sense affirmation, that, that self-affirmation, but also external affirmation. And, you know, he persists that in terms of, you know, his own, you know, his own experience, but that of many others, people who are hyper-successful is because they need to be hyper-successful. They need to feel that they're doing well. Otherwise, there, there is a deep hole in their existence. And I think that for me, in terms of things that I was doing well, it, it wasn't fulfilling at all. But the thing that I was lacking was that sense of community because I feel that healing comes within, it, it comes through attachment, it comes through others, it comes through a feeling of safety, yes. it comes through a feeling of connected, it comes through acceptance. That's what I was looking for. And, and I'll, I'll tell you about the time that, you know, that, that I felt this probably for the first time and, and it was it was in this circumstance whereby I was with a group of 20 people and, you know, there was this, you know, this pastor or whatever, and he gave the message and, you know, afterwards, you know, he, he asked, you know, if, if anyone had a feeling, a calling towards God, please put up their hand. And, and, you know, I was 16 at the time and I looked at him and I put up my hand and I said, I had that feeling, you know, maybe, maybe it wasn't God, you know, maybe it was a sense of connectors a connectedness maybe it was a sense of acceptance that feeling that who you are didn't matter you know that there was someone who loved you and 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 it was a community with whom you could find belonging but isn't that the divine right isn't that god at least my perception of god that is it you know i i believe a lot in Jungian psychology and particularly around ideas around the collective unconscious and about the way that humans narrativize their lives and, and the way that they structure their, their ideas, you know, in, in archetypes and things like that. And that is why I, I, I generally believe in the truth of that. And I believe that there is, you know, that, that connectedness to the divine in that experience, that was truth in the same way that I've seen similar 
all across the world that I've that I've lived in, in Muslim countries, in Buddhist countries, right? you know, in hey, in communist countries, where we're feeling people feel connected to to something to something else, and I I I, I feel I feel there is truth in that. It's a wonderful yeah. explanation. It's beautiful. And and you know, also another thing that is so powerful, particularly around some things in Christian action in evangelical movements, and and maybe it's unconscious or maybe it isn't. But afterwards, you know, when I said what is commonly known as the sinner's prayer, you know, you had 20 young people reach over and laid hand on, on me as, you know, as, as you pray. And it was like a, a communal group hug, you know. Wow. And you know what? Wow. There was a feeling of wholeness that that, that, that came over me. And, yeah, it was it was healing. Yeah. I understand that I support, you know, the, the, the deconstructionist movement and, and, and I support ideas around trying to basically process a lot of these things that I'm describing. But for me, it was, it felt real and it was real, right? And it's, it's easy to sort of, to, to deconstruct everything to the nth degree and to say, oh yeah, someone was primed and, and yeah, absolutely. That might've been the case, right? But for me, this, this, this was real and, and, and it felt real. And, you know, I think that what's interesting and perhaps in this current COVID situation, you know, the healing power of touch and, you know, across many cultures, people heal through touch. And it's poignant that hands and touch are an integral part in, you know, of healing in Christianity as it is in others. Yeah, and, and it's the same concept in, in other cultures where, you know, that healing through touch, it isn't attributed to God at all. You know, I, I remember feeling like that feeling at the time, you know, you felt like a little bit like a, an emotional leper, right? And and even though, you know, you have a very close family and you have close friends and you're doing really well, but that, that feeling of being connected to something, that feeling of being whole, it was absent. And maybe it's because in so many ways our, you know, our societies have made social capital redundant we no longer really rely on our neighbours for our collective survival in mm. the same way that we might have in the past. So people are screaming out for this stuff. And maybe that's the same reason as to why many people feel attracted to some of these movements around the world and, and, and in, in industrialised countries. Sometimes a little bit later, you can, you can see some of the rationale behind or see some of the motivations from others so that whilst you know, your experience was true. And, you know, what I described before was something really poignant for me, right? And, you know, even even describing it just now, you know, I got a little bit emotional, right? And because it, it did have an impact and I did realise the reason, right? To put it into perspective, so when I came back many years later, you know, I worked overseas and I was overseas for a decade or so. And so I, I worked with the United Nations. After I came back, I ended up going, and, and it had been many years since I'd really been actively involved in the church, but I just wanted to go back 
and maybe it was a desire for, you know, to, to feel connected to the place that I was living in or, or just, I don't know, many reasons maybe. But I went back to the same place that I experienced that conversion story and the same pastor. And he didn't know me from a bar of soap. And, you know, we talked about this and he didn't recall it at all, right? And I guess that that is so poignant in some of the, you know, in, in, in yeah, it, it's, it's such a, a poignant example and feeling that, you know, there was this focus on influence, there was this focus on souls. It almost felt like the economy of people, like the economy of souls, in that there wasn't a reverence of the individual who was engaged in that. That was just, it just felt like that person was like a scalp. That was one number. And it was after that that I just decided that I was never going to go again. And And it was after, yeah. And how old are you at this point? I mean, this would have been about five years ago. So there was many, many years after this experience. I, I, I can forgive the person for not remembering, right? But I suppose it sort of puts it into perspective when something so intimate for you obviously meant nothing to the other individual or it just was just one part of many involved in, right? It does sound quite impersonal because you would have thought that that would have stuck with them. It's not like you were Maybe. part of the millions that, that came later. Maybe that's what the focus is. Like the focus in a lot of evangelical movements isn't around the building up of individuals, right? Or, you know, maybe they, they, they might persist that that is, that is the focus, but it's about, you know, the focus is more on the external and growth and things like that. So it does have, at least in my perspective, something of an internalised capitalistic sort of narrative and idea. Yeah, and I feel like I, I didn't want to be a part of, you know, and, and I mean, these are ideas I was, I was developing, you know, back in my teens and, and early 20s as well, but I, I, you know, I didn't feel that I wanted to be a part of that economy, you know, the, the economy of souls as, 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 as what I described earlier. The reverence of people's stories, the reverence of, yes. you know, in, in, in many ways in these mega institutions, it feels so impersonal. There isn't a reverence of individuals' particular stories, right? And maybe that's that's one of the reasons people just feel like a number. That's the direct opposite of how it starts. It's so personal and it's so humble and intimate and so interesting how growth leads to that, just eliminating all of that. What happened after that? Yeah, so after that, started then going to, you know, a place that was closer to my home. And, and previously I described that, you know, I ended up going to, you know, um, a relatively large institution that was just down the road. Of course, it, w- it was a lot smaller than what it is now. But suffice to say that this place has a, has a, um, a, a global reach. What, what was interesting is that I ended up going with a, a group of friends from school and, and were quite closely knit but what was interesting was that the experience of many of the other people in the group 
you know, whilst of course, you know, it, it wasn't identical to my own, but you know, I, you know, in, in reflecting back, there there are a lot of there are a lot of attachment issues amongst you know some of the you know some of the others you know with broken families and and um, issues around mental health, and I think that that's something that is quite poignant to to reflect on in that there are certain people that that feel maybe more of a a pull towards institutions that whereby they feel a sense of connectedness they feel a sense of belonging they feel a sense of safety maybe that they didn't or hadn't otherwise received elsewhere i'm just while we're thinking here i wonder if that's got something to do with these institutions large success in australia specifically because there are so many disenfranchised people from all over yes. the world yes. missing their villages missing their entire culture um, yes. and not necessarily recognizing it yes i just wonder if that's why they were so successful at that time hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. During migration in the 80s and 90s where population of uh, called communities in these institutions, but I'm wondering if that had any influence. Hey, anyway. You know, I think, I think it's also important to say, and, and you know, it's, you know, it would be disingenuous to say that all the experience was bad. You know, I spent my my formative years staying in this place. And, you know, I, I went through a long time where the only thing that I could focus on was the bad stuff, right? And yeah. um, it, it, it really did consume my mind for many years, particularly after I left, even if my life, you know, might have been relatively successful at that time. These were things that, that, that they used to pry on my mind and, and, and to try to unpack these things. And um, this was at a time that, you know, there wasn't deconstruction podcasts or anything like that. It was just basically me sitting down and trying to understand what the hell I'd experienced, right? It was hard to focus on the good things. Right. And, you know, yeah. I'm a big proponent of, um, of narrative therapy. And the basic idea behind this concept is that, you know, a survivor self-identifies or overemphasizes a, uh, a problem-saturated narrative, right? So this could be many things. It could be abuse. It could be religious trauma. It could be rape. It could be many things, right? And then someone self-identifies with that trauma. So they, they think that, you know, I deserve that or... I am the trauma. So it becomes all encompassing of their life. But the thing is, healing comes through a reflection on the other story. So enriching one's 
perspective on the diversity of ex- of the stories. You know, their skills, experiences that might be outside of that dominant narrative. So maybe my own healing was similarly applicable through that same idea that you know initially I felt you know a great sense of purpose and a feeling to community and it was it was good you know and I guess one of the great things as well that there were few existential questions at that time you know I, I was born again and you know there was that feeling that you know I was going to heaven and and whilst it could be described by some as, you know, drinking Kool-Aid, I admit that that experience was liberating, you know, and for many years going through that process of reevaluating my life and, and my purpose and my goals and values, you know, sometimes I have to say that I missed it. But, you know, there were some genuine people, yeah. Probably 90% of the people you will find in those buildings are genuine people trying hard to do good things and that's why they're there and the Kool-Aid stuff doesn't come till much later by no means downplay the magnificence of what takes place I think that's also a message for other people right in that to do an audit and and to, to reflect on not just the traumatic experiences and I know I know it's really hard to do so but to have a reflection on the diversity of experiences at that time. You know, it's hard to generalise a place as large as the one that we're talking about in the same way that it's hard to generalise an institution like the Catholic Church, as we described previously, right? Because whilst, of course, there are those many circumstances of abuse, but there's also the, the things that I focus on as well, like things around, you know, social justice and those figures that I find that I found deeply inspiring. I can't comment on as to whether it is a conscious thing. One thing that I know, particularly in terms of human relationships, when, say, for example, someone who has attachment issues, who might have attachment issues with primary caregiver, right, in that we replicate the relationships that we have a lot later, they were basically fermented in not to five. So when there isn't that sense of safety around that particular period, that sometimes we can replicate a similar relationship with an intimate partner in the same way that we had when, when we were young. So we didn't necessarily go out to purposely seek someone who might be similar abusive as to what our apparent was, right? But that's just what happens in the same way that the individual that we end up with, right, is also attracted to someone with similar characteristics. People, you know, who have attachment issues might find themselves in similar relationships unconsciously in institutions like the church. After that first night, what happened after that? After that first night, you know, I decided to go to a place that was closer to my house. And, you know, I ended up going with this group of friends with whom I had at school. And from there, 
I, you know, I became deeply involved in the, in the youth ministry and I spent a number of years in the youth ministry at the time and this was in the late 90s. And then afterwards, um, I became a, a leader in the youth ministry and then I was a, a Bible study group and I, I would have been a, a leader in the youth ministry for another five years. Well, okay. and, then, and then abruptly I, I just left and then I never went to uh, the place again. So you were talking a little bit before about all the things you'd seen mm. having an effect on you. Yeah, mm. I, think, I think it probably was something of a cumulative thing. So, you know, whilst a lot of the things that I experienced previously, you know, had, had, a, had a deep and positive impact, I think there was a, it was a, a cumulative experience of sort of moving away from the institution until one day I suddenly just, just didn't want to go anymore. And previously I was talking about attachments and, and, and I was mm. using sort of that mm. as a framework for understanding maybe one of the reasons as to why people go to large institutions like this. And, and I think that within some of those relationships, they use control. And at least in terms of some of the things that I was observing in, in this institution was around having quite a, you know, a... Uh, a need for control as to whether it was always conscious or something purposeful. I, I really, I don't want to hypothesize. I guess I have my own ideas. I think sometimes it was generally well-meaning, right? But, but also it was also quite, quite damaging as well. And then maybe one of the examples that I can give was around a concept of reporting, right? You know, I mentioned that I was one of the leaders in the youth ministry and there was a time whereby, because I was a psychology student at the time and I was was hardly qualified or anything like that, they asked if I could oversee the the, the well-being arm of the the high school youth ministry at the time. And, you know, I I knew that it had been a practice of people reporting on the, the, the young people that are in their care, but I didn't quite see it at more of a systemic level and it was one time that I started I agreed and I started doing this and and you know that they handed me a, a spreadsheet of names effectively of it was something along the lines of a, of a sin sheet that people wanted me to oversee or support and wow. you know okay. there was yeah so there was you know Johnny or Timmy or whatever and and there was sort of something that they were struggling with so you know Timmy might, you know, and, and it was all written down, has homosexual thoughts or tendencies, Janie is masturbating or whatever, right? Oh, God, where was this kept? Yeah, see, and, and that was the thing that I had such a, a huge issue, right? So I, 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 I received this and I looked at them and, and then I asked, where, I mean, have, have their parents consented to having any documentation on their kids? And basically, I, I was quite disgusted in receiving this. And I told them, I said, I don't want to see anything like this again. And I think it's probably illegal in terms of what you're doing, right? And the thing was that I found so difficult, particularly around exchanges like this, which happened quite, you know, it's more of like, who are you to question us? Like in the, in, in the, hierarchy of the institution you do not have the authority to be able to say to us that what we're doing is wrong in in, in circumstances whereby 
they're pulled up on issues pertaining to ethics, pertaining to just dodgy behavior or things like this. And you know what? They might not have even really been privy to it, right? But for me, it was blindingly obvious that you don't write reports on young people. Yeah, it was in a, it was in a, it was in a database. The head of the youth ministry, I, I, I don't know where else. But I received this and I said, I don't want to see it again. I think that it's probably borderlining on, you know, on criminality, but it's definitely not something that I think that we should be doing. It wasn't received in the way that, okay, well, you know, okay, that, that's a, this person might know a little bit more and thank you for that input. We're not going to do this anymore. It was sort of like it was received with anger in that, like, who, who are you to tell us? that what we're doing is something that's unethical, something that we shouldn't be doing, right? And this happened quite often during my time because I, I wasn't someone who was, you know, I was always quite forthright in terms of my opinions, in terms of things, and, and it probably didn't really, you know, influence my relationships with others quite positively and maybe for the better. But, yeah, so there was this issue around control. There was this issue around you know, the need to know everything about people's lives, the young people, and I found that of great concern. There's no part of you that thinks that there was some altruistic or positive motivation in keeping those records. Those weren't prayer sheets. They were control sheets, is that? I think that maybe there might have been some well-intentioned, some well-intentioned focus, particularly in terms of the framework in which they were looking at the world in terms of sinning and blah, blah. But they couldn't see that something like that, particularly getting in the hands of others or, or just in terms of ethical record keeping or anything like that, it was something that you just don't do. So on the one hand, there might have been some altruistic motivation for such, but no. I mean, it's, it was dodgy as... And you don't do those things. What kind of an impact do you think those kinds of records have on people when they're considering leaving? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, this, this was many years ago. And the thing was, is that after that I made a fuss, it was known that I did, right? And they supposedly stopped this practice. But you know what? I don't know. I, I really can't say as to whether, because I think that, there probably was something along, you know, that there was an attitude that was probably ingrained within the institutions and the, the machinations of said institution that probably needed to know information in order for them to make decisions based on such or whatnot, yeah. Well, this is what the Bible college students have reported this year, is that they're asked yeah. all kinds of questions on admission Sure. about their recent sexual history specifically and then are yeah. allocated or not allocated positions because of that. So sure. it's definitely an well, ongoing hey, practice. I mean, I'm not, I'm not really privy to that, to that circumstance, but this is something that happened 20 years ago. So, I mean, hey, if, if there hasn't been an evolution of that, well, you know, it, it might mean that this is something that, in fact, they very much intended to do. No wonder so many people don't speak or don't want to tell their story or, as so many journalists have found, cancel because they know there's sin sheets sitting somewhere, you know, like in a Scientology office somewhere. 
one of the main reasons as to why I'm talking to you today is because, you know, many years ago when I was struggling with some of these issues, when you came out, you were the first person or one of the first people who, who publicly talked about some of these things, you know, was trying to come up with a why, asking those questions. The thing is, if a place like this was like a local church in, you know, in, in the corner of a small town that had no aspirations in being anything more than what it was, 50 people serving those individuals, okay, all right, whatever. And, but even that, it's, it's these things there wouldn't have been good, right? But the fact is, is that the aspirations of institutions like this, not just this, but other large multi mega whatever you want to call mega churches or mega institutions around the world they aspire to be bigger they aspire to be more influential they aspire to have that global influence and with that comes responsibility and with that comes accountability so when you have a public profile like that you'd need to accept that there's going to be scrutiny in terms of things like that, because it's not just the lives of a few, it's the lives of thousands sometimes. So, and, and I, I, was, I was so inspired when, you know, when there was no one else who was coming out, but you came out and, and then I reached out to you and, and, and I found that quite cathartic in some of the discussions that we were having around that time after I'd left the institution and after I was working in the United Nations overseas. I mean, we used to have conversations when I was in Bangladesh or when I was in, yes. the, you know, some yes. some war in, in, in Mali or wherever. And so <laughs> that I was experiencing those things there, but the things that I had experienced previously, I was just trying to make sense of it. You know, that, that's one of the reasons as to why I'm talking to you today. Is Thank because, you. you know, I, I, yeah, I respect what, what, what you did then. And it was it was not easy to, to, to stick your neck out like that. And I think that it was deeply inspirational, you know, and, and, and very brave to be able to ask those questions. And because, you know, it's, it's a powerful institution, right? And, well, we need to ask questions in terms of how are people being treated? You know, are there things that are unethical? And what are some of the ways in which these can, things can be improved? Yeah. And so my thing has always been just about documenting the information just just to put out an alternative point of view and that's what I'm so excited about these all of these interviews is getting all those different perspectives out there one of the things that's always stuck out for me talking with you is that level of accountability that you've reported in your roles is so necessary you can't just (laughs) you know get government grants and not say where they're going or what you're using yeah. them for. And also in terms of our personal conduct and the way that we the way that we associate with those that we work with. And you know what? Like I've I've lived a very flawed life. I've been I've been made accountable to the mistakes that I've made and rightfully so. And and dare I say I believe that that in the future I'll also be made to be accountable for the mistakes I made, particularly vis-a-vis others, right? I I hope that I don't make mistakes and sometimes it might be unintentional, but it's inevitable that I might hurt people in the future. I do hope that, you know, when someone might bring something up to me, 
that I will be able to properly reflect on the things that that person or whatever is being said and then try to be reflective enough to be able to change that and to be honest in terms of myself, what were the motivations which led to this thing and then make necessary changes. But unfortunately, I haven't always seen that to be one of the circumstances within this institution, particularly in in times where I brought things up where, you know, I'd either observed or had experienced some hurtful behaviour or whatnot and it wasn't always received in that way. Either the, the blame was placed on myself or it was just completely ignored, right, because it was something that was quite difficult, you know, to receive, I suppose. And I think a lot of that comes within that paradigm of, you know, of the, the leader and the follower, right? So in a hierarchical institution like this, so you have these charismatic figures and then the charismatic figures need a flock of people to follow them. And that was always something that, that made me quite uncomfortable, right? When I, when I started going into this, because I had no choice in terms of who was the person that I had to then think that this was the leader that, that, I, that I had to follow. It was a decision that was made outside of, outside of my consciousness, I suppose. Well, it's, it's not a democracy there, is it, at all? You don't get to no, choose the king. Not. And in a way, I've, I've sort of developed an element of compassion, I could say, for people in contexts like this, particularly in those leadership positions, because you know what? But I described a scenario whereby people were coming to me in terms of the, the wrong that I've done and then having to, to try to do better. It must be exhausting to feel or believe that you need to be infallible or you need to be perfect. It must be absolutely exhausting to go through life like that. You know, you need to feel that you are that leader. You need to be, you know, you need to take on that persona that, you know, otherwise is self-attributed or has been attributed by some other because, you know, a lot of those people, they're not perfect people. And more often than not, sometimes they're pretty horrible people. But to go through life where you're constantly curating a persona where you can never show fallibility, where you can never show weakness externally, it must be extremely exhausting. And in many ways, I feel very sorry for them. You know, imagine having to be bouncy all the time, all weekend. You'd never be able to go down the shop and have an off day. You know, who is a product of the machine? You know, I look at someone like Carl Lentz who was 21 when he first got yeah. really stuck into it. Yes. I mean, it's, it's an adult, but it's a very young age to be put under, you know, and it, and it, well, it suits that age, but yeah. it, it's still quite a young age to become, as you say, so attached. Yeah. And, you know, I remember Carl from, from those years ago, you know, well, I suppose one of the things that always fascinated me was, you know, the, the notion of how do you become a pastor? How do you become a leader in, in, in those contexts? And at least from my perception, the, the only prerequisite was a, a close relationship with the leadership. And, you know, it's something that the, the Chinese like to call guangxi, you know, which is relationships thank you sean and i hope everybody really 
enjoyed that. It took me quite a few lessons to absorb everything, all the really rich layers behind this. And in a lot of ways, that was just the warm up. That was just to get to know Sean a little bit because next week's going to be incredibly powerful and next week's going to be next level. So look after yourselves. Oh, and please keep up the likes, follows, subscribes, comments, all of those things. And drop by Patreon if you can. Three bucks a month will go a really long way if you choose the loose change Larry category. And we'll talk then. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.